Hello, and welcome back to the Fighting Fergans podcast. Today, we have Mitch sharing with us on formation and practicing the way of Jesus. Let's jump right in. And that is why you go to the nations, y'all, to, to learn happy birthday and celebrate people in all sorts of different manners. <laughs> that might be the most inter- like energetic introduction ever. I feel like I'm like, all right, and let's, let's land this plane, you know? <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Father God, we love you. And we just look to you as our Heavenly Father. God, as sons and daughters, we look to you. Would your Holy Spirit the promised Holy Spirit that is in us, minister to us today. Your Holy Spirit delights in revealing Jesus that we would see the Father. So would we see you clearly today? Would you compassionately bring conviction to our hearts? And as we repent, would we receive your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love? God, may we step into all that you have for us. That we would witness of the goodness of God all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to take a moment and uh, just recap for a second. We are uh, talking about having a resilient faith in our, in our current cultural moment, specifically Western culture. And again, the reason that we're talking about this is we have been shaped by the culture that we were raised in. Because of uh, the internet and a more globalized world, Western culture has in many ways uh, influenced all of us or touched all of us. And this matters because it is the formation of culture that challenges what we receive uh, when we're in gatherings like this. The way you're formed, when we, when we deny that we have been formed by culture, we assume that we come in as a blank slate. And the challenges that we face uh, appear when someone brings conviction or the, or the scriptures are revealed and, and things become hard to chew on and we want to reject them and it feels natural or it feels like it is against us. And this is because we've been shaped uh, by the world around us. And even more specifically, my heart for you is that when you go back home, if you go back home, when you go and you are back and you are immersed in culture, you would have a greater understanding of the forces that want to work against you, right? The monastic uh, uh, fathers would say that there are three forces that work against us, the lies of the enemy, our flesh, and the world, culture. And so when you go back home, in spite of having profound encounters with God here, moments of prayer, moments of breakthrough, you will go back home and you will be alone with your own self. And your flesh will demand allegiance to you. The enemy will scheme and try to coerce you into believing lies and sin. And culture will subtly influence you. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to prepare you 
that you would know that we are, it is true what the Bible says, that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and authorities. And these forces and culture as a force is a part of that. And there is a battle that is taking place for your very soul. And so we must prepare ourselves and place the armor of God upon ourselves that we would wage war for the sake of our souls and for the glory of God and the sake of others. This is what it means to be a disciple. And so we talked about that we were disciples of culture before we were disciples of Jesus. And that all too often we commit our lives to Christ, but rather than following the ways of Jesus, we continue to build our lives adhering to the creeds of our culture. We remain disciples of culture and form a fragile faith. I think it's interesting that we sang happy birthday, right? It's a song that is known and celebrated all over the world. But that's the thing about songs, right? They're memorized. You understand them. You know them. They become uh, things that, that you do as celebrations. But there are songs of culture that tell you who you are, how to live, what relationships look like. And they're memorized like you don't even have to think about it. You know, this is one of the reasons why I remember I was uh, leading worship. And, you know, when Good Good Father came out, like that old ancient song, right? You know, <laughs> House Fires won, you know? <laughs> When that song came out and every church across the world was basically playing that song five times in a row every Sunday, the complaint was like, why are you playing Good Good Father again, right? It's pretty much like Reckless Love now, right? You know, it's like, why are you you're playing Reckless Love? Great, you know, get something new. They, people would complain and I would go, the reason we sing Good Good Father is because you think you're a good, good father. Because you think you're a good, good God. And every day that you live, you sing a song over your life about being the God of your life and you try to orchestrate your life in such a way to prove to yourself that you're a good God and to others that you're a good God and you worship yourself. So we sing good, good father because it's counterformative to what you sing over yourself. Culture has songs, they have creeds, they have declarations that they give to you, you're handed them, your family, your city, your nation, the world, your internet forum group that you're a part of, whatever it may be, has a way of being and it forms you and it's handed to you. And it is our responsibility as we repent and turn our eyes to Jesus that we would exchange our ways, whether they are created by you or handed to you for his ways. There is an exchange that must take place. And Western culture has this idea that because it was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, that this is a, a, a promised land, that there's no exchange that needs to take place, specifically in America. We rarely talk about it in church, that there is an exchange that needs to take place because we assume that what we've been handed is inherently Christian. If we could just go back to the good old days, right? But the reality is, is that what we're experiencing isn't a promised land, but more of a Babylon. And what this means is that it makes scripture come alive to us. When Peter writes to those, the diaspora, the dispersed, the exiles, the elect exiles, when Paul writes to Rome and is communicating to people that don't feel like they fit into their homeland anymore, we can allow those scriptures to speak to us. See, those scriptures seem irrelevant when you think that you live 
in a promised land. But when you start to realize, wait a second, everything, art, media, the news, my school, everything is trying to shape me and I don't feel like I fit in anymore. When we stop trying to fit in and we realize I fit into the kingdom of God, which means I am a peculiar person in the eyes of this world. When we stop trying to make it work and be relevant and we start trying to really hold fast to the ways of Jesus, you begin to experience being in exile, being someone not of this land, a foreigner. I love in, uh, in Colossians, it says to those, uh, you know what, we'll just pull it up. This is just, just pull it up in my Bible. I have all these notes in here and it makes it a little bit hard uh, to find passages because they just automatically jump. Let's see here. We're just going slow. We're just having a good time. You know, we're having a good time. We're going to, we'll, we'll get into it in a second. I wore shorts today. I don't really, pre I told my wife, I was like, I don't really like preaching with my knees exposed. And she was like, <laughs> was like, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know. I just don't ever wear shorts unless I'm here. <laughs> let, me, let me read this to you. Let me, let me read a verse to you that we often skip over. You ready for this? Colossians chapter 1 verse 2 says this, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, can I get an amen? amen. In Christ at Colossae. In Christ at Colossae. Now we normally, we're in our Bible reading plan, we get in the word and we're like, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, skip, go to the meat, right? Let's get down to the, all of the good. Image of the invisible, I love that verse. It's like my favorite verse in the Bible. In Christ at Colossae. See, they are in Christ at Colossae. You have to receive that you are in Christ at wherever you may be. When we assume that being in Christ and that you're at in Christ because your nation is a Christian nation, we no longer repent for the ways that we've been influenced. But we are in Christ at wherever you may be. And so we must challenge our souls to live and express such a way that you resemble and exemplify being in Christ in spite of wherever you may find yourself. In Christ at Colossae. We're a different people. We're not of this land. And I believe that there is a profound and powerful and prophetic witness that is available when we as Christians would cling to being in Christ more so than being relevant to wherever we may find ourselves. Culture is a collective group's way of life. So when I say culture, what I'm describing is the way of life. Narratives and principles, practices, relational values, defining norms, a vision for life. And the institutions that propagate said way of life, media, art, music, education, politics, and religion. Again, it can be very easy to stand up here and come with a negative tone towards what we've experienced in Western culture, the way of life, and then pick easy battles and critique media, art, music, education, politics, and religion. And I don't think that's actually beneficial. 
it's really good to like rile people up and just like start going after different things, right? Like if I just came up here and had commentary on like Western politics, education, media, art, and music, if you guys like took videos of it, it'd probably go viral, right? Be like, pastor is terrible or whatever. You know what I mean? Like just would go, people get riled up about that. But here's the reality. If I'm lecturing on this five years from now, those things will change. Generation Alpha, the generation that y'all will be ministering to, will experience a different culture handed to them. Here's something that the information in the time of Jesus doubled some hundred years. So the amount of information that was readily available to the public doubled in a, in a long period of time. Information doubles in our generation, depending on what Google Analytics you look at, roughly doubles every 24 hours. So the amount of information that you can consume doubles, like it increases, doubles every day. So the force of culture and the pace in which culture is changing, it, it is ever increasing. And the reason this matters is part of what I want to do and offer you isn't just to be like, hey, here's specific nuances of what you've experienced. Let's deconstruct it. Let's, let's give it over to the Lord. What I want to do is, is have you have eyes to see that culture is a force and it shapes you, but you are in Christ now. And as followers of Jesus, we must adhere to the culture, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. And so our lives must make space to encounter God, that he would interrupt us, that we would continue to live out the ways of Jesus. Our culture reduces reality to natural consequences. We have been handed a pressure to control the consequences of life. When I meet people and they're like, I'm tired, I'm like, well, what do you do? Well, I wake up at 10.30 and I uh, work four hours and then I go home and play Fortnite or whatever, you know, and I'm like, I don't know why you're tired. There was a part of me at one point in my life that I was like, I don't, I don't get it. In fact, I think a lot of the older generation at times gets frustrated by people being tired. But I've come to have a great empathy for people and a compassion for people because there's actually a lot of pressure that goes on internally to be in control of every single outcome of your life. We talked about pace yesterday. There's a pressure on this generation to do more faster on display and validated. That's an extreme amount of pressure. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but there is a pressure to create or curate an identity. You have to figure out who you are you have to put that identity on display. That identity has to be affirmed by everybody around you or else you don't exist. That is an internal pressure that we hand to people. But isn't it good news that when we give our lives to Jesus, we no longer have to create our identity? Like everyone in this room that claims the name of Jesus is adopted as sons and daughters. Your identity isn't for you to make anymore. It's for you to receive. You don't have to find yourself. You've already been found. Seek and save that which is lost. You were lost, but now you are found. And your identity is son or daughter, co-heirs to Christ. Again, this is why biblical literacy matters. Because for us to live biblically faithful lives, we must understand the identity that we're handed. 
There's so much of this life that you don't have to figure out what to do. The Bible teaches it. There's over 150 B statements throughout the Bible. Be this, be this, be this. And we should allow those statements just in and of themselves to challenge us. So often it's like, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, are you functioning in your identity? Sometimes God doesn't want to tell you what to do. He wants to remind you who you are. And if you would just live who you are, you would know what to do. I think the Holy Spirit who, who reveals Christ and all of his teachings actually reveals who you are. And I think so much of discernment can sometimes be boiled down to, am I functioning in the identity that I claim to have in Christ Jesus? And then part of spiritual formation and discipleship, this is my favorite part, is learning how you uniquely express the identity you've been given. Because you are uniquely and wonderfully made. You are unique. Your story is unique. It deeply matters. But that's not the starting place. The starting place is what you receive. I now can go to the Father. I don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship, adoption, to say, Abba, Father. I have my Father in heaven who gives me my identity. You have a Father in heaven who has given you an identity. And brothers in this room, our identity is the same. And sisters in this room, your identity is the same. You don't have to figure it out. It's been given to you. This is why anyone can sharpen anyone. If we can humble ourselves and receive, when like part of being in community like this, and this isn't even in mind, I gotta hurry up. We have to humble ourselves to receive from each other. And I'm not trying to receive just advice on how to be a good human or efficient or like start a business. Like there's parts of that, but there's really parts of it going like, you're a son. You know that God loves you? You know that God has adopted you, that God has blessed you? It says in Ephesians 1, every heavenly blessing on you. You're an ambassador of Christ. You can be steadfast. You can be sure. You can be joyful. You can be at peace. You can be a hope. That doesn't, when we know the scriptures, this is what we get to call each other into. Sometimes we stress and struggle so hard to try to figure out how to encourage each other. But going back to the identity that you've been handed is a great place to start. And in fact, it's a great place to witness to the world of just being able to say like, man, this is what I'm experiencing. This is who I am. We don't have to put like special sauce on like your identity. It's beautiful enough. And honestly, the world is so hungry and so burnt out trying to figure out who they are. And if we could affirm the identity that we have in Christ with each other, we wouldn't be chasing affirmations of this world. What if you became obsessed with just functioning in your identity that you've been given and not trying to create it. And not trying to create it. Combating the cultural thieves of encounter, desire the Lord to lead, receive the embrace of a loving God who heals, desire the Lord to interrupt your attempts at control, desire the Lord's heart, and desire the Lord above all things. We wanna be a people that pursue encounter that are okay with God interrupting what we think is efficient, allowing God to, to put us in the position of waiting on God. Andrew Murray has a 40-day devotional on waiting on the Lord. And I love it. it. It has like shaped me in deep seasons where I was like, what is going on? When it was like God wasn't speaking loudly to me. God, why would you put me in a place of waiting? 
Andrew Murray writes that we don't wait on things that we don't believe do not exist. That actually waiting is strengthening your soul's belief that there is a God who hears you. It actually is a proclamation. Every time you wait on the Lord, it's a proclamation to your flesh that demands urgency that you believe in God. Think about that. Do you guys realize every time you express conviction, you are actually warring against your flesh that wants instantaneous stimulus, sin. Like our flesh works against us. And so every time I can speak out against my flesh, I'm actually strengthening my soul to live in the spirit of God. Like, this is, a, and, one, and this is the truth. It is the one gift you can give the Lord, right? To, to minister against your flesh because in heaven, there will be no flesh, right? Like, you will have a resurrected body, but the flesh's voice, the curse of the flesh will be gone. Like, theolo- like here's a, just a little thing for free. You, you receive salvation instantaneously. You are saved. The Bible says you are saved by the finished work of Christ. What Christ did on the cross, you are saved. Paul teaches us to work out our salvation. So there's a process of salvation in which we are actually living in the authority and the salvation that we have received. And we will be saved uh, on the day of judgment. God will usher us in and we will be saved. So there is a final salvation. And I believe that is actually the removal of the curse of the flesh on us because we will still face death, but we will have resurrection life. And so we get to live in opposition to our flesh daily. And every moment that you choose to stand in purity, in righteousness, and oppose your flesh, you're strengthening your soul. You're strengthening your soul. And I would encourage you to journal these moments out because they become markers that give you confidence in hard seasons. Oh, I know how to tell my flesh to be quiet. David in the book of Psalms writes to to praise the Lord, oh my soul, in opposition to my flesh that's just experiencing my circumstances. We get a war against it. The interruption of Jesus leads to the invitation of Jesus to be a disciple, to follow him, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and to live under his ways and his lordship. So today, I want to talk to you about navigating the narratives of culture, right? So we talked about encounter and what it looks like that we've been given a disenchanted world and so we don't believe in encounter and and everything is reduced to its natural consequences. But part of culture is the stories or the narratives that we share So we're going to talk about the narratives and we're going to talk about practices. So this is the narratives of culture. We live in what's called a secular culture. Charles Taylor writes this, a secular culture moves a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. A secular culture has moved us and shaped us. The stories that we adhere to is that one of understanding God is only one option amongst many, and it it is very difficult to embrace. God may exist, and it's okay if you believe in God, but actually living as though there is an eternal Father that that is living and breathing and active within your life 
is becoming ever increasingly more problematic and challenging to embrace. Here's a bit of a trajectory on how we've gotten to this place. Charles Taylor, in his work, A Secular Age, writes this brilliantly, and this is my best attempt to synthesize it. Secular zero would be something like everything is governed by a Christian or religious understanding and the church. So when Rome became a Christian nation, everything became governed by the church. The Catholic church ruled and reigned over everything, every decision. Secular one would be society is governed by a Christian understanding and ethics, or understanding and ethics, but you have the choice of whether or not you want to participate. Right, so we talked about the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, the root word for Protestant is protest. It was a splitting. It was a, it was a separating. And I believe this is actually the catalyst for why there are so many denominations and so many different splittings. But what began to happen in this Enlightenment movement is that people were able to split out, separate apart, protest against. It was actually the birthplace of saying, I no longer want to be under the authority of the church at all. And so all, although there was beauty and true reformation that took place in the reformation. Also, the enemy has taken that and allowed people to fully remove themselves from belief in God at all. Secular two would say the sacred and the secular are divided into distinct separate spaces. The sacred locations become separate and further pushed from influence over society. This is probably best exemplified in Europe where you can go and you can travel and you can see beautiful churches. There's like the most beautiful architecture and art given to the Lord, but they are so separate from the commonplace, the farmland. In America, it's not that, it's, we're not very secular too in the sense that we put churches in warehouses and call it holy. You know what I'm saying? Like we're in a tent right now and it's like, we're doing it. And it's amazing and it's beautiful because the spirit of God is everywhere. He's ever present. He's with us, right? We believe that. But we can see where, where our culture separates sacred acts from secular acts. And finally, secular three is the governing and ethical role switch. Transcendence, or that experience with God, is denounced and religion is rejected as a means to orchestrate one's life. So where we find ourselves, the dominant story that we have found ourselves a part of is that the governing and ethical roles switch. God is denounced and religion is rejected as a means to orchestrate one's life. What you're doing, the trajectory that you are setting yourself on, is in culture denounced and a faulty way to orchestrate your life. Many of you probably have friends that are like, cool, you're doing YWAM. I heard that was a cult, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but I like you and that's okay. But then you go home and you continue to wake up early and do your devotions and pray to God and make decisions morally in your relationships that become more and more peculiar to your friends. And they will begin to question whether or not you're fully there. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? It doesn't make any sense. It seems like you're not having as much. I'm way more free than you. And the force of culture has a way of making you long and lust for the ways of culture because it is just easier to give in. Like it is, can I just, I have compassion 
for young people who are trying to live upright in regards to their sexuality. And it's not just a struggle against your flesh. It is sometimes a struggle in just trying to convince your peers that, uh, of the reasons why you do what you do. Like, it, it, is, it is becoming harder and harder to convince people, I'm going to wait for marriage. Because the answer back to that is, well, Tom, Brady, and Giselle couldn't make it work. So, you know, like, I mean, I just read an article on CNN yesterday about the failure of Western marriages in regards to Giselle and Tom Brady, right? As a convincing factor that people shouldn't get married, they shouldn't abstain, they shouldn't wait, they shouldn't protect their sexuality, they shouldn't give themselves to each other. It is harder and harder to convince the world around you that the reason you live the way you do is based on an ancient text revealing a, the God of eternity. It just doesn't make sense to people anymore. And this is why if you spend your time trying to work tirelessly on how to convince people why what you're doing is, is a, a, a good way to live, you're going to burn yourself out. Because it's just, it's just, you have to witness to what God is doing, not just witness to why you're doing what you're doing, because it is not of this world anymore. I believe we have to reclaim prophetic evangelism for this reason. We can't go around trying to lobby and convince. We have to carry the spirit of Christ and his power and authority within us. Because people aren't going to understand you. I mean, I meet so many young people. Part of what I do on this, I, I help, um, I consult creative entrepreneurs and so I, I meet with people and I listen to like how they want to build their business and then I try to help them do that. And it is difficult when I meet Christian entrepreneurs who are like trying to step into like the influencer world. And it's heartbreaking to me because I usually have to ask, I'm like, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And so I, I want to know, like, what, what are your standards? Like, what are you, what, why, what are you going to do? You know, like, what makes you different? What are you, like, why are you going to do what you're going to do? And, and the reality is, is that so many people are like, man, I don't know if I really want to spend my time trying to justify why I don't post these types of pictures or do these kinds of videos. So I think I'm just going to give in, right? This is just difficult. Or the only means by which I can make more money is to do this, 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 and this, even though it subtly compromises my beliefs. Compromise is slow and subtle, but it will rob you of everything that God has for you. So when we forget our identity and we no longer have community around us to remind us of who we are, we will start to compromise what we do because we've lost ourselves again. So let's talk a little bit about story and what is the story that we've been handed. For that, I'll talk about Mr. Rogers, free love, and the financial crisis of 2008. You guys all know who Mr. Rogers is? Yeah! Still relevant. That's crazy. I guess there was like a movie about it. Tom Hanks did a great job. Humans, humans are narrative creatures. Humans are narrative creatures, and what that means is that the stories we tell ourselves, they shape us. 
We observe and you observe every moment through the lens of story. Narrative paradigm theory teaches us that narratives are more compelling than arguments. Stories sell better than arguments or facts. The principles of our culture are shaped by narratives. Like people, our nations are shaped by its stories. Our stories shape our philosophies, the way we engage with the world. Charles Taylor describes a shift that has taken place in the now rationalized, natural, disenchanted world. He describes a shift from an age of mobilization, which is marked by duty, to an age of authenticity, which is marked by self-expression. The age of mobilization is this age where a country or a nation was able to unify for a common good. We're going to send a man to the moon, and I am just doing my duty. To an age of authenticity, where the individual becomes the primary, and the expression of self becomes of utmost importance. And the truth is, is the age of mobilization was good for unity, but it also dehumanized so many people. When we think about wars, and we think about the loss that we've experienced through wars, and how we ha were able to dehumanize people as bad guys and good guys. That is a byproduct of the age of mobilization and where we thought we had progress. The age of authenticity puts the pressure on the individual to figure out who they are. There is increased freedom and awareness, but there's also increased pressure and responsibility. Mr. Rogers taught us that there's only one you, and you are very special. His show, although geared towards children, very much captures the shift in the collective philosophy. At the same time, the free love movement, movement in the 60s brought forth sexual liberation and freedom. The primary way of expressing yourself was through your sexual desires and sexual accolades. Our sexual identities became the primary human right that needed to be fought for. Love became a term defined by the individual and fought for by the individual. You are no longer given an identity based on where you grew up, your, your socioeconomic status, but how you define yourself sexually. The reason conversations on, on sexuality carry so much weight and why they have to be done tactfully and with love and compassion is that the primary way for our culture to identify as individuals and as existing is through their sexual desires and sexual expression. So when we come with a sexual conviction, what we are taking away from people is their very identity. And so if we don't lead with the exchange that Jesus offers and we just begin to demand that they give up what identifies them as a human, we, we run the risk of walking around literally making people feel like you want them extinct. So it's not just a matter of what is right and wrong, although there is, clear biblical, there is a clear historic biblical understanding of God's vision of sexuality and ethics. We have to carry an understanding that what we are saying they are embracing and doing. When we challenge them, we are challenging their existence. And this started before we were even ideas in our parents' heads. 
For many, probably before many of your parents were even born, this was beginning to take place. This is what we've inherited. Your identity is reduced to your sexual desires and how you identify your sexual expression. The economic crash of 2008 further distanced this idea that we could create something through an, through an age of mobilization or duty. Many of your parents saw their parents build their lives on an idea that if we did it right, we would be okay, and then all of a sudden, the financial crash takes place. And it birthed place a nihilism and a distrust. I no, longer distr- I no longer trust the systems, the government, the ways uh, that I've been handed. I don't trust the family unit. I don't trust religion. Nothing is trustworthy. To put it in philosophical terms, and we're going to go somewhere, so just take a deep breath. I promise you. Okay. That's that. Thank you. It's hard to get an amen when you're like pre-modernism. And you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, amen. I love that stuff. I want you to understand this. This is just to build a case to convince you of what, what we all have been handed. Pre-modernism, accepted truth given to you by the religious institutions or education. Modernism is defined truth, right? So then then enlightenment takes place, the scientific method, education becomes more readily available. Truth is defined by rationality and education. Postmodernism is post-truth. So we're looking at post the free love movement in the 60s, the age of authenticity, the rise of the individual, the crash of 2008, all of a sudden truth becomes your own conclusion. Individual autonomy. Truth is relative to you. You can believe whatever you want to believe because truth is what you deem to be truth. Metamodernism, which is where, where many philosophers would say that we are actually, and sociologists would say that we are kind of gravitating, is truth. We want, we want the truth of modernism, but we want to get there through deconstruction, so all we're left with is experienced truth, what I feel. Now, there's an opportunity in this, and there's a danger in this. I think it will actually be a lot easier in the future to get people to try and experience a way of life by coming to places like this or different schools or, or different kind of like cohorts and, and experiential kind of practice. I think it's actually, I think our, your generation and my generation and the generation to come are actually getting a little bit more comfortable doing an experiential activity. In fact, in Washington, I've had friends be like, Mitch, I had a spiritual encounter. And I'm like, okay, this is, I don't know where this is going, right? Like, I'm at a coffee shop. I'm like, oh, really? What'd you do? Well, me and a group of uh, young ladies, we went out into the forest, and we were practicing grounding, and we got naked and started singing songs and touching our hands together, and it was like a spiritual awakening. And I was like, how, and you spent money on that? Like, yeah, it was $1,000, but I had like an awakening. And I was like, you should try church. It's free, and you get to keep your clothes on. You know what I mean? You're, you know, like, you don't have to take it. Like, it but, but this, and, I, and I say this not to poke fun at it. Well, I, yeah, I did say that to make fun of it. I get these emails from a spiritual bookstore in Washington because I went to a concert there once. And each week, it's like trying to convince you to try this new guru's method of having a spiritual awakening. Like, and it's, they are, tomorrow I'll bring one, and I'll read it to you because it's just 
absolutely wild what people are doing because people are open to experience truth now. So this is why it matters that our witness comes not just with word, but with the power of Christ in us. Because within you is actually spiritual power to give someone the encounter that their soul is longing for, and they are continually willing to seek out crystals and all sorts of different things to have an experience, but you carry the one that they are actually longing for. So it's time for us to go, I have experienced something, I make space for an encounter, and I am a walking encounter with the living God that your soul longs for. And that identity that you are trying to have an experience to convince yourself that it is real actually exists when you encounter God. So, I mean, I just think it's time that we get a little weird with it and we start walking up to people and being like, can I bless you? Can I awaken you? You want to be awakened? Do you want to have a spiritual revival within you? And then you just start praying and laying on of hands and then you give it in the name of Jesus and you watch people get set free. This is why it matters. This is why it matters that we have a high priority for repentance and our own personal freedom. If you live in partial freedom, you're going to feel like you're going to settle for freedom that isn't truly free. But if you live in the confidence that you've been set free, oh, then you can free people. And that's like, watch someone get set free and chains and bondage and shame and stories that they have lived in for years get lifted off of them. You start living freely and lightly and bringing people into freely and lightly. Oh man, then it's actually good news. So my question to you, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, is how free do you want to be? So I pursue a lifestyle of in, encounter with the Lord, interruption with the Lord, because I want to be free because I want to give it away to people. And I want to see people. I want to lay hands on people and watch them be set free. And I believe that we're in, we're in a culture that is open to an experience, and I want to make sure that I'm a walking encounter. with. I'm an interruption to your life when I meet you. And that's what you get to be. We get to be walking interruptions. In describing our culture, James K. A. Smith wrote, Faith is fraught. Confre confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. There was a time when doubt was something we had to fight against. Now, doubt is the normal. You have been immersed and raised in a culture that teaches you to distrust every truth handed to you. In fact, even in the past weeks, and probably even as I'm talking right now, there's an internal argument going on within your mind. Like, do I really trust this guy? He's kind of just moving, his knees are exposed. You know what I mean? Like, do I, you know, like, can I trust, right? Like, there, there are things that go on and I think it. I sit down and I go, mm, I don't know. I mean, it's so easy. We do this in church all the time. We're evaluating all the time. And then we call it like, well, I just want to make sure the doctrine's right. It's like, well, maybe love is always trusting and you should just try to receive from the Father because that's, you know, like, I'm just, a, you know, like, I don't know. Like, we don't need more critics. We could probably just try to get and see the Lord. Like, I don't care who's talking. I can have time with God whenever. Like, if the guy's off base, I can just go see the Lord. Like, we don't need time. Like, we don't need more blogs tearing down the church. We need our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
But the reality is, is that there is an internal court case going on with everything in your life. Your friendships you distrust, when are they going to betray me? Your job you distrust, I don't know if this is really my purpose or if it, like, actually I feel any sort of meaning from it. Your relationships you distrust, I don't know if, if he or she are, are, is right for me and I don't really know if even like monogamy is right. You watch a couple YouTube videos and all of a sudden you don't want marriage anymore. Like there's all of these things that we distrust. So our location we distrust. I don't know if this is the right space for me. So we're constantly in a place of distrust. Distrust is exhausting. Well, but again, the good news, right? I don't trust in my own ways. I trust in his ways. So I get a trust in his voice and his leadership and his love and his, his guidance and his identity that he hands me. And again, this is why having a confidence in a relationship with God where we, we make space and time to allow him to lead is so essential. I mean, it's so beautiful out here. Like, I love walking around and, like, seeing people do and, like, reading their Bible. I'm like, man, this is amazing. Like, this is a special, this is special. It's like thin space. You're, like, looking out in the ocean, you're like, the God of the universe created this ocean, and the ocean can't even encompass the grace that God has for me. And you start reading your Bible, and you're like, like, having, like, rev bombs just hitting you all the time. But it's why it's, it's why, did you say heavy revy? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's why we have to be a people of the word where we make space for God to, to speak to us. Where we allow him to speak and, and shape our hearts. Where we learn to trust his voice, the still small voice. And where we demand our soul's allegiance to his voice. Like we have to demand allegiance over, we know that he has saved us. Part of walking in that salvation, John Wesley would say, would be learning to trust the Lord. Everything is on trial. Everything is on trial. And it's exhausting. Man, it is exhausting. And I think that it's just important. I mean, and you get, if you get your journal and you just sit and you're quiet and you just write, what do I believe about God? Just write it in the middle of your journal. Just circle it. And then you just let the Holy Spirit, like, question you. Reveal in me any, any, any thought that is not of yours. Any way my heart is distorted from your heart, God. Oh, God, I trust you, but I don't trust you with finances. I mean, can I be honest with you? Right now, uh, in January, we have our baby boy, and we're ex I'm so excited well, I'm also uh, stepping out of my position at our church to start a church uh, in our house that's going to be slow and kind of like micro church while doing this ministry. And it's hard to explain. And so I'm talking to people trying to, to raise support and awareness. And I'm like, I don't really like I'm just trusting God like this does not seem like a wise idea. You know, like you're like, well, Mitch, you know, you're type A strategic kind of guy. Like, aren't you an executive coach? Like, isn't that what you do? And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I realize I'm breaking every rule like in what I'm doing. And it's, it's brought me to this place where I write, what do I really believe about God? Does he really go before me? Does he really like does he go before does he prepare the hearts of people that I will encounter is he is, is he really the one that blesses and will financially like provide do I trust him like do I trust God and it's like I trust God for a move of the spirit but do I trust God to protect me or am I living in a, in a constant doubt that God's really there that he really loves me that he really like do I have to prove to God I had a I have a friend um Harrison I meet with him every Wednesday um and we like just go hard like it's just like 
call me out on my stuff all the time. So we drive to coffee, and it's just like 30 minutes to get to the coffee, 30 minutes to get back. And we got to the end, and, and it was a few weeks ago. He goes, man, Mitch, it sounds like you feel like you're illegitimate and that you're trying to manipulate the perception God has of you so that you'd be worthy of a blessing. And I was like, you know, I was like, dude, this is the kind of friendships I have. Like, I mean, it's just like they're like brutal. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. I don't think I feel legitimate as this is an expression of what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel like this is the next best thing for me to do, but I do feel like it's God's thing for me to do. And I feel like I have to manipulate his opinion on me and the opinions of people around me so that I can justify being supported because I don't really trust whether or not God's going to follow through on my life. So the stories you've been handed is one of distrust and how that distrust manifests may differ from person to person. But this is why we must challenge the idea that you have to distrust God. God cannot lie. That wrecks us when we really think about it because many of us, our faith journey, we talk about, I'm just wrestling with the word. Good, wrestle with it. But what that might mean is that you don't trust God. And that's not a shame statement. That's not like, that's, that's what you've been handed to critique all literature. But this isn't literature, this is revelation of who God is. And all that means is that if you are doubting, that you get to invite the Holy Spirit to go, help me trust you. Help me. We look at the scriptures and, and uh, Lord, I believe you. Help me in my unbelief. Man, that's a good passage for us. That's a good passage for me. God, I believe you. I want to believe you. But all I've been taught is how to distrust everything. Help me in my unbelief. Show me, God. Reveal yourself to me. I want to see you. I want to know you fully. Okay, a couple more things. We live in a post-Christian, what Mark Sayers would say is a post-Christian society, and it's to move past Christianity. A post-Christian culture no longer finds a personal or social benefit to claiming a Christian ethic or belief. Um, there was a time, is this thing still on? Oh. I mean, I can yell, I got it in me. Oh, <laughs> glory. <laughs> see, I was distrusting the microphone. You see what happened? There's no social benefit to being a, a, a Christian. At one point, it was like, I'm turning my life around, so I'm going to go to church. And it might get you a lower sentence in prison, right? Now it's like, I'm turning my life around, I'm going to counseling, right? Like, there's just no benefit. And that's not a dig on counseling. I, like, I go to a counselor. I'm just saying, like, look, there is no social, there's no benefit to being a Christian. But even greater than that, a post-Christian Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Mark Sayers would say it's, it's wanting the kingdom without the king. A post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of its cost, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places on the individual. So we want joy, peace, hope, love. I just don't want submission, surrender, and self-sacrifice. I want the fruits of an identity where I'm free and fully known and fully loved. I just don't want to submit to a savior.
We also live in a, a post-atheist culture. Post-atheism finds no social benefit in the rejection of God. And I think many of you probably throughout school experienced this. There was a, a time when to reject God, you had to convince why you reject God. This would be like the new atheists, like early 2000s. There was a whole movement of people being like, let me convince you why I no longer believe. Now there's no reason to convince. God is irrelevant. Do you understand that? Like, th- like, hear the weight of that phrase. Generation Alpha in America by Barna Research says that they're going to be one of the first unreached people groups in America. And the reason this is, is it's not because they don't have access, so we have to be careful. My wife would be like, that doesn't mean unreached. Like, I love my wife, but that's, we got in a huge, like, our first date was literally sitting around. This is a true story. We were sitting, it was New Year's Eve. It's like probably our third date. We're sitting, and she's telling me about the unreached, because she's, uh, like, has a missionary heart. And I'm like, well, if there's a kid that's 13 years old that's never heard the gospel and he commits suicide, he's going to hell, and that is not acceptable for me. And she's like, there are nations that have no Bibles, no access to it. One word. They have a word. And I'm like, we're crying, right? Like, this is like, this is like, I'm, this is us actively falling in love, is like arguing over like what it means to be unreached. And she's like, I will stand to get the Bible to every nation, the 1040 window. And I'm like, Yes, and I want secular cities saved, God, you know? And my, you know? And my friend was the waiter, and he's like, he brought over like cookies. He was like, this is not, Mitch is about to get broken up with. He's doing something dumb. Post-atheism is a different kind of unreached beast because God is irrelevant in progressive cities. All my friends in, from Norway, like you, under, you understand, like your society pretty much gets it, right? You're happy, you're all beautiful, you know, like I don't understand like how that works. Sweden is the same. I, like I meet Swedes and I'm like, what is going on? Like I, I must have messed up my design or something, you know, like it's, it, where there's peace, where, there, where, where there's these societies that have progressed beyond a Judeo-Christian ethic, there's just no reason to convince anybody why you do or don't believe. You just don't talk about God. You don't talk about God. And this has created a, a religious narrative because humans, like our souls long for identity. Like your soul longs for identity. Part of being made in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, leaves your soul longing for identity. And we are given and receive an identity as those that follow Jesus. But those that do not follow Jesus long for identity. And so we, we add religion to everything. There's structure to everything. There's a way, like, there is a structure that tries to justify why your identity is worth validating. And so the world creates a religious script that is just void of Christianity. They wouldn't call it a religion. They would call it secular humanism. And this is, this is the quote from their website of what it is. Secular humanism, a body of principles suitable for orienting a complete human life. Okay, first things first. The dominant religious narrative 
of Western culture is one that believes that there is a body, a set of principles suitable for orienting a complete and human life. This tells me that the soul still longs to be whole and complete. And it believes, though, that you can be the savior of your own life if you just adhere to proper principles for this complete human life. As a secular life stance, which is a way of basically not saying religion with it's a way of saying religion without saying religion. Secular humanism incorporates the enlightenment principle of the individual or individualism, which celebrates the emancipating the individual from traditional controls by family, church, and state, increasingly empowering each of us to set the terms of his or her own life. The complete human life is out there, and it is up, for you. It is up to you to discover it, to live it, and to adhere to it so that you can experience a complete human life to put it more simply our culture has swapped the creator for the created god is a creation of humanity so it is easy to denounce we are the creators of humanity we are god and we make a way whether you would identify with this or not the story that you have been handed by culture is that you are god and it is up to you to be the author and perfecter of your life. Trust yourself. Just believe. You're unique and special in every single way. Only you can be you. You better write a good story, and I hope people around you validate it. That is so much pressure. Why do we struggle with comparison? Because they got their story validated, and I didn't. Why do we not like the secret place? Because the only place I exist is the public sphere. So I don't like living for an audience of one because I have only, I've been taught to live for an audience of multitudes. Why do we have a hard time following Jesus? Because we crave having our own following. And sometimes Jesus leads us to being not seen. And sometimes the most influential thing we could do is go hide away. Not just put everything on display, but we've been taught that the only way that we exist is if we are, if you didn't take a picture of it, if there's not a video of it, if there's no documentation of it, you didn't really happen. Because I already distrust you, so unless you have physical proof, it doesn't matter. This is why sharing testimonies matters, but it's also challenging to us. You can share a testimony and the room could go, yeah, right. You saw healing? You saw a leg grow out? Yeah, right. No, you didn't. How many times, I mean... I don't know if y'all do this, but like I go on YouTube and I'm like healings, you know, just like every once in a while. It's like, you know, it's like Greek, Hebrew. And then I'm like, let's, let's look up healing videos or like finger of God. I love that. I, a YWAM student came back when I was a youth pastor. This is how, this is how I experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time. Crazy YWAMer came back and he was like, bro, do you know about the Holy Spirit? And I was like, yeah, I know I'm a pastor. I know about him, but what are you talking about? He's like, have you ever seen him move? I was like, no. Shows me finger of God, and I kid you, I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm watching things, and I'm going like, yeah, right. And then I encounter the Lord, and like, in baptizing the Spirit in a way, like, that I've, like, it just was insane. And I encountered the living and active God moving in my life. Now, that's not a statement on finger of God, but it is a statement of going, this is what you face in opposition when you share a testimony. You come home, and you go, you won't believe what I saw in Egypt. You won't believe what I saw God do. I saw people give their lives to Jesus and people go, yeah, right. 
People will push against it and go, yeah, I distrust you. You have a picture of it? Then they see a picture and they go, eh, fake. Photoshopped. No way. There's no way that guy didn't have a leg before then. You know, like there's things, like that is what's going to happen. And slowly but surely it will erode your confidence. So it matters. It matters that we understand this. It matters that we understand what the pressure that we feel. There are things that God wants to say to you in your quiet times that are just for you. Oh, they're just for you. There are dreams that God wants to give you that wake you up at night, that stir you, and you're like, man, I believe, and it's just for you. You have to throw away the pressure of being like it doesn't exist unless someone else says that it does. The testimonies and the altars of your life where God has encountered you matter for you and his relationship. He loves you enough to give them to you. They're not always meant to be valid. You don't need to live your life trying to be validated by others. You need to live your life trying to be validated by one. And like, we have to have a heart that reclaims this. And it's not a both and. And I I, I used to be like, no, maybe there is. And I just, let me be the one voice that says this. Don't think that you're the like exception, like that you get both. I don't know if I believe that anymore. Like you get the the valid, like I'm starting to think that the validation of the crowd is probably not a real godly thing at all. And Western culture says it can exist. It can, you can have both. And I've watched so many of my friends, like my friends, fail out of ministry because as they got the crowd, as they got the influence, they slowly began to make compromises so that they could keep it. Because all of a sudden it wasn't an audience of one anymore. It wasn't about living in holiness. It was about living in validation. I mean, and why would y'all are filled with cool people? Like, it's like Christian TikTok 101 right here, you know? Like, we can just do it. There's a lot of, like, dangly cross earrings and, like, cool haircuts. Like, I love it. It's amazing. I love it. It's so cool. I would do it if my wife would let me. I don't have any hair, so I'm, I'm already losing. But the truth is this. Be very, 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 and, and look, if God's asking you to do something, Zane, Zane will correct me on this. Look, go after it. If God tells you, go after it. Have accountability in your life. Have real accountability in your life. But here's just, I just promise you this. If you don't obsess about an audience of one, you will compromise once you start getting validation. Because it just feels more real. You've been taught that that's what's real. The love and the praise, and then you'll want to maintain it. Like it feels like it's, that it, it just, it will compromise you. So please be careful. The temptation to take back the throne of your life, the throne over your life is ever present in our culture because it says you are the God of this world. All right, let's see. (laughs) All right, want to take a break? Should we take a break? We good? Everyone good? We're light? (laughs) Fun topic week, you know, like. (laughs) All right, take a break. Ten minutes and then we'll be back. Our culture has swapped the creator for the created. God is a creation of humanity. We are creators of humanity. We are God. We make a way. This is the story. And our stories differ, but this is the story that we're handed. And here's the good news is that, like we talked about yesterday, Jesus interrupts us exactly where we are. So there is an encounter with Jesus where he's coming to you personally and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a new way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can submit and surrender the story that you were handed and receive the true story where he becomes the author and perfecter of our faith. I think sometimes 
We get environments in church environments and we think that to follow Jesus is to just rid ourselves of our past as if it doesn't exist. And I think that's deeply painful for people that know their story or carry pain and, and trial in their, their story. Jesus doesn't want to ignore your past. He wants to redeem it. Redemption acknowledges your life and your story. And our Heavenly Father has space for you to confess your story to the best of your ability back to him. This is actually good news that God is all-knowing, right? Because he always draws us into further honesty. Let me say, let me say this. I, in rooms like this, there's always... You, there, there's always people that probably carry this pain. And, and I, God wants to redeem your life, which means he's okay with you being honest, sharing it to him. You don't need to withhold and protect him from your story because he wants to redeem it. This is the thing about story. Your past is your best retelling of your story. If we were to walk up and grab lunch and we were to catch up or like if, if we if you guys sit at a table and, and you're like, Mitch, come over here, I would come and be like, tell me your story. What's your story? And you would give me the best rendition of your history in the form of a story. Right. Your present is interpreted through the way that you tell your past. And the reason this matters is that your brain, like I said yesterday, has two jobs, keep you alive and become more efficient. Part of the way it becomes more efficient is by taking the stories that you've experienced and interpreting the present uh, through those stories. So the reason that it matters that we're honest with how we see our lives and our past and we submit it to the Lord that he would redeem it, that we would get his authorship and his penmanship on our past is that we wouldn't live in the present reliving the same brokenness and pain that we've experienced in our past. Does that make sense? So we have to get honest with what we carry and who we are as we come to the Lord and we surrender and submit that, that we would be able to walk in freedom in our present. Our futures are a merger of our past and present stories, and it's the script that we write. So we struggle seeing hope in the future. It's because we need to let our past be redeemed, that our present would be free, that our future can be written by God. I can't say that again. I, that was the first time I've said it. <laughs> That's literally it. We have to be those. See, when you are dishonest with your past, and what I mean by dishonest, when you withhold, when you withhold your past from the Lord, you, you, you withhold him redeeming your past. So then your present is still marked by the things of pain or circumstances or stories of your past, and then your future becomes written a, a lacking hope because you're not walking in freedom. This is why I believe we have to reclaim repentance and deliverance. Like God wants to heal you and set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. There is a freedom. Part of that freedom is from your past, but you have to submit it. The extent of your honesty determines the depth of your intimacy. So we got to get comfortable. Like we got to be comfortable with the Lord interrupting us, and we got to be comfortable being honest with the Lord, right? This is how I see it, God. 
This is how I see it, God. Confront me on where I'm missing something. And that's okay. That's safe. That's sacred. That is a sacred place. God, this is my best interpretation of how everything here is working. Help me see it clearly. Oh, come on. We have the Holy Spirit, our promised counselor, greater than, one, free, second, better than any other counselor we can ever have, and, they, and he is willing inside of you at any moment of the day to counsel you through how you see everything working. So we carry a story and we must submit our story to Jesus by the submission of our story to Scripture and to His presence. Or else we will continue to live in this story. And so don't withhold. Man, the best thing you can do is just be brutally honest with the Lord. John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. She had a story. And I got to do this quick because I got a lot. I'm like behind. John chapter 8, when you, read, when you read it as a narrative, when you, when you allow your imagination to kind of pick it up, there's this woman. She wakes up in the morning. She gets ready. It's feast time. There's a festival in the streets. Maybe she carries a story of insecurity, and she really would love some validation from someone else. Maybe she didn't have a dad growing up, and she wants, she, she wants male attention. She looks in the mirror. There weren't mirrors back then. Looks in the mirror puts on her makeup there wasn't makeup back then she convinces herself there was makeup back then you know puts on her eyelashes it wasn't those <laughs> looks herself in the mirror and convinces herself that everything is okay and she's fine and the pain of her past is gone and she's fine i'm fine i'm fine she goes to the, the party. Meanwhile, a man married, convincing his wife he's not going to go to the party to stay home with his children. I'm just going to go for a little bit. I'm just going to, I'll be smart. I'll be smart. I'm fine. We're fine. We're good. He looks himself in the mirror and says, I'm not struggling with intimacy. I feel validated. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. They go to the feast. And two broken stories come together, and it culminates in an affair that culminates in this woman being thrown before Jesus, caught in the midst of adultery, naked and ashamed. Jesus, in the midst of these Pharisees who rightfully caught this woman in her brokenness. Now, it would have been... It, based on the Mosaic law, the man should have been brought to, and there was a whole thing. It was a scheme to trick Jesus, but there's a principle in this. Jesus was with her in her nakedness where she was caught in the honesty of her life, and he was compassionate, and he waited till every accuser left and allowed her to walk in freedom. We get the choice to come before the Lord and not withhold because we can trust, based on the revelation of Scripture, that he is okay meeting you in your nakedness and your shame. In fact, you don't even have to go to John chapter 8. You can go to Genesis chapter 3. God chases down Adam and Eve in their nakedness, their fear, and their shame. God is okay with you being honest, even when honesty feels like nakedness, fear, and shame, when you are worthy of being accused. 
The woman caught in adultery, it wasn't like a setup. She did the act. Our pasts contain things that, that are broken. And we get to know that Jesus is the safe one to come before and go, God, here's my brokenness. I like to do this practice in my life with Jesus where I confess to him and then I allow him to say back to me, is that really it? Is that really it? Well, actually, if I was honest, it's a little bit, little bit more than that. Is that really it? Well, I mean, I guess if it was honest, like, I, you know, this, that, right? Like, allowing God to get your honesty, becoming comfortable in confessing fully to him because there's redemption that comes when we submit our stories. How are our story, how do our stories, oh, and I was, I was saying this to Jordan, but I have all of these, I will give you all of these notes and slides and videos. I have it, you can have it. I will make sure that I get it by the end of the class. So, so uh, yeah, <laughs> notes. <laughs> so don't, don't feel like you have to write from moving forward, don't feel like you have to write everything down. Write what the Lord begins to speak to you because we're about to go a little bit more personal here. <laughs> Habits, patterns, and paradigms. This is part of the way that we express our stories. And so this becomes deeply personal. Habits are I must statements. Throughout the course of your life, you've created statements that produce habits of self-protection. I must, I have to, I have to do this, this, this. I respond like this because I have to do this. I have to avoid embarrassment. I have to make sure that I'm perfect. I have to make sure that I'm put together. I have to make sure that, that I'm comfortable. I have to make sure that I'm painful, whatever it may be. Habits become, uh, habits are part of our story. So as we investigate our story before the Holy Spirit and we begin to surrender this to the Lord, I look for statements like, I have to do this. Habits over the course of your life creates patterns. Patterns are, 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 uh, patterns are fostered within relationships and they demand your habits to be used. So if you live with an I must statement, you will reinforce that statement through relationships that demand that you must do that. I must be perfect. You find yourself surrounded by people that need you to be perfect. So it validates this lie that you have to be perfect, like you're the savior of this world. Far too often we get in this place where we go like, I find myself in relationships with people that demand the very thing that's broken in my life, but it reinforces that I have to stay broken. This is why when we're not honest with our story, we don't walk in redemption of it, and it's reinforced by people around us, and we wonder why we linger in brokenness and bondage. So we have these habits, we begin to confess these habits, but then the habits reveal these relational patterns. I am always the, I never get to be blank. I'm always the one that, like, I, I so many times, I mean, I work with a lot of pastors and, and at my church. I oversee a handful of ministries, and a lot of the times when I'm walking with pastors, they'll say things like, I'm always the one in my friend group that gets, that gets like, bombarded with the brokenness. And I go, like, I want to challenge, and, you know, this is kind of my role. Let me challenge you. I think you have a habit that puts you in a place where you must fix people so you feel safe. So you find yourself constantly reinforcing that lie by getting yourself in relationships of people that are needy that unintentionally take advantage of your need to fix people. 
So then you constantly feel empty because you think you have to fix everybody. But it's because you live in, in, a, in, a, in a pattern of putting yourself in, in relationships like this. Because you don't trust that Jesus fixes you and them. I love YWAM Kona. This is the greatest. That's like That's like the harshest thing I've said and it's just like, yeah. But think about it. We have these habits in our lives. There's stories in our lives. There're things that are handed to you, things that you've experienced, ways that you've interpreted reality working. So you got really good at protecting yourself. This is normal, by the way. Again, not a place of shame. Don't let the enemy lie to you. This is not a place of shame. This is what we've experienced, and this is why repentance matters, because we get to hand this over to God. There's a better story. I promise you that. Whatever the Holy Spirit reveals in your life is a habit or a pattern relationally, God can break and restore and redeem. And then it gets to be authority that you get to take territory away from the enemy from. So I lived in an experience in my life where it was like, emotions are dangerous, they uh, are not helpful, and they're embarrassing. So avoid embarrassment. And what that meant was I had to look like I had it all together. I was never like emotional, right? In fact, here, I'll even get more personal. Is this being recorded? All right. All right, all right. Well... It's not that. I'm not afraid to go there, y'all. I just, like, I, <laughs> I'll go there. We want to go there. All right. Okay, it's not even that good, guys. It's not that good. Let me, let me show you a simple story that had massive consequences in my life. I was in, when I was, when I was young, like, I, at some point in my life, I, like, fourth grade, I was like, I'm ready for marriage. You understand? Like, that was, like, my mind. I'm ready for love. Like, romantic comedies, they raised me. I was ready. I was ready. I was mature. I just needed to find my perfect one, you know? In middle school, I became infatuated with this girl. And it was one of those classic, I'm ready for marriage. She wasn't ready. She was in middle school, you know? And it was a classic on-off again, I like you as a friend or as a brother, right? <laughs> Any middle school pastors, you just got to know, you'll see that kid, that 7th grader, 8th grader, 6th grader walk in just teary-eyed, and you're like, oh, you got the I like you like a brother, you know? Like, it's all right, man, come under my wing, you know? Like, it was on and off, but I was infatuated. And I remember there was a specific moment in my life that marked my life. I had confessed my utmost love. <laughs> and the, the bell rang for class. And I was like, this is the worst timing ever. Why, God? <laughs> Are you really there? I go to class, longest class ever. Bell rings. She's nowhere to be found. One of her friends comes up, gives me a letter. I'm like, a letter? This could be good or bad. I was optimistic at the point. I get the letter, and I had basketball practice. And this tells you that this was in middle school because I was this height in middle school. So I was like... Average height, they still should be playing. I had hoop dreams, right? Like, <laughs> I go to practice, I'm waiting in practice, and I open up the letter. And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going good. This letter is a little too long for a good letter. So I go to the, I remember this vividly, go to the bathroom, my one place of privacy, <laughs> sit down in the stall, 
read the letter, and it was like the answer was no. And I remember ripping up the letter, throwing it in the toilet, and going, I will never be embarrassed like this again. I will be the one that is desired, and I will make anybody that doesn't respect me regret it. Like, like as a seventh grader, right? I, yeah. Gain station. All of a sudden, it was like, let's get yoked, right? I'll show you. My triceps will make you regret it. <laughs> it doesn't work, fellas. It's okay, but it's all right. <laughs> but it, but it, it, in, <laughs> but it put me on a trajectory where vulnerability was dangerous. Listen, this is the habit. I must not be vulnerable. It's unsafe. I'm not going to open up my heart to where I can be wounded. I'm not going to show my emotions because I could be taken advantage of. I will be respected, so my, my presentation is going to be perfect. I was meticulous. I will curate how everyone saw me. If, so, if, I, if someone didn't like me, my, my goal in school was then to convince enough people to invalidate that person so that opinion would no longer affect me. Do you see how this would like, work? My patterns in life is then I would find people where I was the upright, utmost person in that group because then I stood out. I would be respected. So I had a habit based on a moment of pain that created a pattern that then created a paradigm, which is the world works like this. If I'm not vulnerable, then I'm safe. And the world works like this. For me to be safe, I got to keep up this presentation. I got to keep up this. I got I to manicure my presentation. So much significant pain in my life came from trying to crucify vulnerability in my life. When the Lord was like, can you just be honest with me? And then I, I, I remember this, even as like a 16, 17-year-old man being like, God, I don't even know if I can be honest with myself because I'm, I'm afraid to be vulnerable not only with you, God, but with me. I don't even know who I am anymore. Like you lose yourself because you start playing this role. You start living this story. And when you merge these stories that you've created with Christianity rather than submitting to them, you have a Christian faith that's like, yeah, God does that, but not really for me. So I could preach a gospel of grace and never get the grace for myself. I could walk people through being vulnerable, but I never got to be vulnerable for myself. I could walk people into giving their life over to the Lord, but I couldn't do that for myself because I couldn't admit that I needed it because if I did that, it would be a step back and then I'd be normal. But I couldn't be normal. I had to be like extraordinary. I had to be like a machine. And it just doesn't work. And then when you can't live up to your own standard, you begin to hate yourself because you're the problem. And you see how this begins to, so if we stop, if we, if we are not honest with the Lord, we fail to receive the redemption that he has for us. So we live as partially, like we have partial breakthrough. And then when life hits us, it validates all the broken parts of us. And then we throw away our faith. Do you understand? Like this, we're shaped by story. And the story that we're handed is that the, you are the God of the universe. And then we create these narratives proving that we have to live a certain way. And because we're given that we are God, we don't ever surrender it over to God. And the reason these stories 
become so deeply grounded in our lives is because they're deeply connected to emotions. Emotional awareness is being aware of what is happening in your body. Like, your emotions aren't just feelings. They actually first start in your body. So when you're angry, you're flushed, your heart rate goes up, right? So you might not know that you're angry. You might just go like, whoa, my heart rate is out of control. I made this joke a while ago that um, I, uh, my emotional vocabulary was like, it was like a foreign language to me. I had like two emotions, angry and happy and hungry. And then like hungry just determined however happy or, or angry I was. You understand? Like I did not have a vocabulary for this. So I actually didn't have a language for what was going on in my body. It was like there's two, happy or angry. You know what I mean? Like heart rate's going up. I don't know. Is this anger or happiness? So I had to learn how to become aware of what's happening in my body. Part of that is going slow enough with the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit's our counselor. Like, he's going to come up to me and be like, hey, how are you feeling? Like, God's going to ask you, how are you doing? And you can be like, fine. And like, in denial that you're like carrying a story of brokenness and he wants to redeem it. He's like, are you going to, like a stubborn child. I'm not mad, you know, like, or whatever it is, right? Like, and God's like, no. I have space to handle this temper tantrum you're going through so that I can give you language for it so we can give you breakthrough through it and so you can deliver people from it. You understand? Like, I'm big enough. I can handle it. Your emotions are not an inconvenience to the Lord. And your emotions can help you reveal the story that you're carrying that you need to submit to the Lord. Emotional understanding is the ability to categorize what you are becoming aware of. And emotional intelligence is the ability to observe all the sensations in your body, interpret your experience of them as a feeling, and use that information to act productively in the moment. We want emotional intelligence. Here, here's why this matters. Your emotions reinforce your stories, and they validate your stories, and they justify why you do what you do. And we just have to be able to submit and surrender those to the Lord and acknowledge those before God. And I just think we, we, we have to get to the place where we learn to hand it over to God so that we can receive all the freedom that he has for us. Are you with me? My, I went through, um, in 2018, I went through a very painful time in my life. Significant pain. And I went back home, I, I went back home to spend time with my dad and my mom and I was on a walk with my dad. And my dad uh, was telling me about a doctor visit that he had. And he was like, he had had heart surgery, so he had to get these routine checkups for his heart. So he goes to the routine checkup. The surgery went well, but the doctor was like, hey, you need to go schedule an appointment for surgery tomorrow. And I was like, why? And he goes, your heart's 90% blocked. And he, the doctor's perplexed by how it got there. He's like, usually at 10%, People feel discomfort, and they come to me, and we get this fixed right away. You're at 90%. If you stay at 90%, you run the risk of having a spontaneous and fatal heart attack. And I looked at my dad, and I'm walking, and my dad's like one of my heroes. I'm like, what in the world? He goes, yeah, I just, I just denied the discomfort. So he settled for pain, constant pain without ever getting it checked up. Let me, the Holy Spirit like spoke to me in that moment. Mitch, how much have you denied 
the emotional discomfort that you've experienced in your life as though it's not present. And it was like he challenged me. You're living disconnected and in denial of your story, and that will lead you to spontaneous and fatal heart attack. It's not more holy to live in denial of your story. It is more holy to live in surrender of your story. God wants your honesty. God wants your story. God wants your pain so that he can give you breakthrough and healing. You don't need to hide your wounds from the healer. He is our divine physician. He cares about you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you a better story. He wants to give you an exchange. And we think at times it is more noble to live in denial of the pain that we have gone through as though it would burden God. And I'm just here to tell you, the enemy will let you do that for a long time so that he can crush you with it down the road. Man, light topic, right? This is a good week. Yeah, we're having a good, we're having a good time. Um, all right, so we have till 1230? All right. I guess. All right. Practices of a cultural moment. We are what we think, so these stories create beliefs, but practices synergetically reinforce what you believe. What you think is only as good as what you do, so practices reinforce the stories of culture and create an identity from your beliefs. So what are the practices that we are handed from culture? So we're handed stories of distrust and the uh, responsibility of creating our own story and proving that we are good gods. What are the practices that reinforce that and what do we then live by? The first practice would be one of deconstruction. So we're taught the story that we have to distrust everything and everything is on trial. Deconstruction is the practice of every idea concept must be tested and proven true. It is false until proven true. So this is the practice of receiving information as false until proven true. Guilty until proven innocent. And so we take every story and we distrust it. And we hold it in comparison to our story. And we distrust. We separate. And we isolate. Second practice I want to talk about is pluralism. Pluralism is the belief in two or more worldviews as being equally valid or acceptable. More than mere tolerance, religious pluralism accepts multiple paths to God or gods as a possibility and is usually contrasted with exclusivism, the idea that there is only one true religion or one way to God. Here's, what, here's why this matters. We're taught that you're to write your own story, and the practice that validates that is that every story is equally valid. So being a missionary and sharing the good news of the truth of Jesus Christ just like goes completely against a pluralistic culture. Why is it so hard to share the gospel? Because everyone's idea, everyone's story is equally valid and true. So who am I to confront you with what you believe about yourself? And we're seeing the fruits of this I, I was talking with um, 
a friend the other day and he said that 70% of late millennials are afraid and think it's an injustice to try to tell someone about their faith in order to convince them to believe the same. That's injustice. You're infringing on people's rights. Everyone's story is equal. Every religion is equal. Can I just say this? And I know this isn't, I don't, I know this isn't the week to talk about it, but um, every religion is not equal. Amen. So I can give a little bit of grace for like ancient religions because they're ancient, but here's the reality. Most of the modern religions are complete garbage from, his, from a historical standpoint. So I'm not even talking about a doctrinal or theological standpoint. I'm talking about this. There are 500 copies of the book of Matthew aged within like 100 years of when it's said to be penned. From a historicity standpoint, that makes it valid. There's like seven copies of uh, Caesar's like memoirs. Like, okay, no one argues whether or not Caesar existed, okay? But there's 500 copies of the book of Matthew. And because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have every book of the Bible dated. So we can talk all day about whether or not you want to believe the Bible, but from a, histor from a historical standpoint, it's justifiably believable as a historical document. And the discrepancies between it is so small. I mean, I, like, I listen to people go blue in the face being like, but there's all the different translations. You should read them. Like, actually do the research. It's not that big of a deal. Like, it really isn't. It really, really, and I'm just saying that being like, do your own, do it for yourself. If you're like, I just trust you. Fine, I get it. I would just say, postmodernism. And then I would say, do your own research. Because like, for real, the, the scriptures that you claim from a historical standpoint are trustworthy. Which means it's, it's, it would, it is wisdom to say, this is a trustworthy document and I believe the theological implications within it. Mormonism, not trustworthy. In pluralism, Mormonism and Christianity are the same thing. Equally weighted, equally historical. Joseph Smith's original documents, can't find them. They're not, they don't exist. The gold tablets, gone. <laughs> and I don't say that to belittle people in the Mormon faith. I say that because I care about them, and the truth is, is that they believe something and it's equally valid, and we're so afraid that we're going to infringe upon people's like beliefs that we don't share the gospel with people. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in a newsletter and 144,000 people that will be carried up into heaven like if they do enough works. Their newsletter is considered a religious document. It's from a historical standpoint, it's a distortion of the scriptures. But because we are baptized in a pluralistic society, we are afraid to make claims like that. And I'm not saying the best way to to talk to and to uh, share your faith is to just prove that. I'm trying to put some boldness in you to go, what you believe isn't foolishness. And it is not equal. It is greater and it is truth. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it is an exclusive statement. So if you live your life feeling afraid of being, like, living in exclusivism, that's, because it's a really hard word to say. If you live your life afraid of being, like, casted as that, I just want to, let me just break the news to you. We are exclusive. One Savior, one Messiah, his name's Jesus. That's it. Exclusive way to the Father. Exclusive. And it's not unloving. It's not an injustice. 
It is the truth of what you, in this room, you registered for this. I'm, I like, you got here because you believe this. I'm just telling you what, you're, what the faith you believe says and why it's difficult. Because we're taught every opinion, every idea is equally weighted. It's just not. It's just not. And we have so much pressure. We will compromise love. We will compromise scriptures for the sake of our definition of love. Because our love says every idea is the same. And we, it just, it, it's going to rob you. It's going to rob you. Individual autonomous reasoning. Every person is responsible for shaping their own life. The practice of separating oneself from systems or institutional thought. Conclusions must be attained by an individual using the tools of post and metamodernism criticism against modernism's staunch reason. So what this means is it doesn't even matter. It's not about logical reasoning. It's about individual deduction. So again, we prioritize the individual coming to their own conclusions. And then finally, the practice of the privatization of belief. Privatization is the process by which a chasm is created between the public and private spheres of life. And spiritual things are increasingly placed within the private arena. So you can believe whatever you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. Don't share it during Thanksgiving and definitely don't tell anybody publicly that you don't know well. These practices reinforce that you are the God of your life, that your story is your own to write, and that you don't actually have to submit to a savior. Or more specifically, we might like a savior, but we don't like a Lord. Like we'll say, save my life, but don't be the Lord of my life. And so when we keep it like, and then this is your willingness. And man, I am, hear me on this. Or your willingness to share the gospel tells me how good you really think it is. Like, is the news good? Is it worth sharing? Because good news is worth sharing. And I just, I feel it like in my heart for the generation being like, we all say we want every, it's, it is so easy to get an amen if I go, come on, we're going to see revival in the nations. Let's go. You know, the right keys behind me, revival, revival. But we don't want to share the gospel. And this is why I love, this is why I love why, this is why I love y'all. This is why I believe in y'all because you're willing to do it. You're willing to do it. We have to share it because there is a true story. There is redemption. There is a new identity. We no longer have to be exhausted trying to figure out who we are. We get to submit our lives, our stories, our pain, our circumstances to God. Receive an identity and live under his practices. Walking with him. Allowing him to reinforce this identity. Oh, it's, it's good news and it's worth sharing. And there's a ton of practical implications what does it mean? Like, what do I do? What do I do with this? And I love talking about that. But I think the truth is this. The doorway, at least how I see it, the doorway into the hearts of people isn't by trying to convince them. It's by revealing to them that you are experiencing an exhaustion because you're trying to figure it all out yourself. When I meet with people and it's like in those honest moments, and I'm like, dude, are you tired? Like, are you, are you tired? Yeah. And you're just like, it seems to me like you're trying to figure out who you are. And it's like you're trying to hold your life together. And I think 
a lot of people think you got your life together, but I think you feel like a fake. Do you feel fraudulent? Yeah. Man, you want to know what's great? Is like Jesus gives you an identity and he validates it and you're not fake when you give your life to him. You don't have to force it or fake it. It's it's be- it's just an exchange. That is compelling to an exhausted generation that doesn't trust anything. People don't we don't even trust ourselves anymore. Like I don't sh- like again, I don't share this stuff so that we can walk around going, "Ah, that movie's so metamodernism." Like so metamodern. Like so pluralistic like it's that that's not helpful what's helpful is when you go like this i live demanding and experience truth in my life i write my own story and then i privatize my story i'm afraid to share anything i live in fear i'm i'm a slave to fear whoa i live i live under the burden of fear i live uh not as an adopted son or daughter So if I can get you to have that moment in your heart, surrender that story to the Lord, receive that breakthrough, you will walk in the character that you need to carry the calling and fulfill what God has on your life. Our cultural practices attempt to accomplish the quest of self-actualization, to save, sanctify, and produce an abundant life. All right. Got a little bit more. 12.07, I think we can do it. Turn it up. Oh, we're about to turn it up. All right, I want to talk to you about van life and uh, soul searching. My, my favorite SNL skit is uh, Chris, uh, Chris Farley's Matt Foley motivational speaker. If you haven't seen it, you're missing out on a joy check. It is just super fun, and you can deposit it whenever you want to in your joy bank. Here's the thing. Chris Farley plays an overweight motivational speaker. He kicks open a door, and he's talking to two disheveled children who are played by adults. And his premise is if you don't get your life together, you're going to be living in a van down by a river. If you don't get your life together, you don't get good grades, you're going to be living in a van down by a river. In 2011, hashtag van life came out in which late millennials decided that living in a van down by a river was a life to ascribe to and pursue. And now people are converting their minivans and living in them, which is totally cool. The point is this, is that it is an experience of staying young and experiencing wanderlust. I want to be able to be flexible where I live. I want to find meaning where I live. I want to travel the world. I want to I explore. Now, I have no problem with that. That's amazing. Here's what I have a problem with. When we fail to see that there is spiritual connections with the natural things that we do. Many of us are living in a van life in spiritually. This is why we go on existential quests. Zac Efron can go to different, you know, countries and experience religions and go, man, I had an existential moment like God was, like the transcendence was there. We distrust everything and we go on our own spiritual wanderlust journeys of tasting and seeing everything so that we can figure out whether or not God is good or which God is good or how we can merge these two gods together and live a life together, right? So we live in this place where we're constantly soul searching, where we're constantly looking and seeking and never finding. Because we distrust everything and everything is equally valued, we, we have to see everything. And this is a temptation that you will experience when you go back home. 
You will get to the place where like, well, that's one truth, but how do you, how do you know that uh, this religion isn't full? How do you know that your experience is better than my experience? You should do this. And then you begin to see things and you go like, well, I think it's equal. I think it's equal. And you begin to merge and your faith becomes fragile and you deconstruct from your faith. And then I've seen this countless times. You don't have to go on a quest to know whether or not Jesus is true. He is true. And we have to go back to the bold claim that he makes. Here's the thing. If Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then I would be like, go ahead and go soul searching. Go ahead. But because Jesus makes an exclusive claim, to claim the name of Jesus is to receive that exclusive claim. Are you with me? So it matters that we, we, we see that the world is longing to be settled, secure, and safe, but our practices have produced a restless, insecure anxiety that is never satisfied. Come and find rest. Are you weary? Are you burnt out? Like, think of the words of Jesus. How tired are we for constantly soul-searching to find a place? We are spiritually homeless. But you, our adopted sons and daughters, who are spiritually at home, we are settled and secure in Christ. And this is what we get to rest in. This is what we get to rest in. There, uh, one theologian would say that uh, faith can be described as trust, but it would be better described as a leaning back and relaxing in. Is that what your faith feels like? I love your honesty. I didn't see your face, but I love it. We're taught a story and practices that make us feel like we're still restless. You're found. And part of why I say we have to embrace an interruption in our life is because where we feel restless, disheveled, unsettled, shaken, there is an invitation to encounter God and allow him to bring your soul to peace. And that's what I want for you. And that's the witness that we get to bring to the world. And so it matters that we start here. Like this isn't just cultural analysis for out there. It's like, hey, do you feel spiritually homeless? Jesus is at the front door saying, welcome home, come in, rest, take a break, take your shoes off, stay a while. Like, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not going to run out. I'm all that you're longing for. Allow God to confront you on where you disbelieve this so that you can receive the truth that he is enough. So why, why do I share about narratives and practices? Narratives produce religious scripts that we then adhere to. And practices are the acts of worship towards those scripts. So the stories we tell ourselves become our religious scriptures. And the way that we live is how we bow before them. And that is idolatry. <laughs> and so it matters that we're honest with our story and with the stories that we've been handed. That we're honest and reflect on the practices that we live. Because the very first commandment that God gives his people is to cast out their idols. You will have no other gods but me, for I am a jealous God. 
when we talk about the merging of cultural creeds and cultural influence with our Christianity, what we're really talking about is bowing down to idols and claiming the name of Jesus. The Israelites in Exodus, they are commanded to cast out their idols, that they shouldn't have any idols. In Exodus 32, we see just a few chapters later that they demand an idol because Moses was taking too long interceding with the Lord. They found themselves ignorant, impatient, and arrogant. I don't know what is happening. I can't wait any longer, and I know a better way. Man, it sounds familiar. You guys, you know, a couple years from now, there'll be another great election year. It's the funnest time to be a pastor in church. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. Oh, those coffee meetings are the best. I don't know what's happening, or you don't know what's happening, or I'm convinced that person over there doesn't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. I can't wait any longer. Things need to change now. Urgency becomes the method in which we make every decision. Urgency is the birthplace of every bad decision in your life. Urgency is the birthplace of every bad decision in your life. So we're ignorant, we're impatient, and we're arrogant. I know a better way. Hey, God, you're taking a little too long. I think I'm going to take back the throne for a minute and start making my decisions for myself. All throughout the scriptures, the people of God are reminded that their identity is a gracious gift from God, that they are chosen, and that they are to live in that identity and have wisdom, humility, and patience. The way of Jesus is wise, humble, and patient. The idols of our day have evolved past carved images. I don't know what that beat is. That's amazing. But they are still ever-present. There are things that we bow down to, things that we sacrifice for, and they tell a story that offers us something in return. Idolatry in the West is rampant, and it is disguised and cloaked and normalized in ways that go unexamined, making it all the more damning to our souls. We are plagued with idolatry and the temptation of idolatry. Timothy Keller writes, Thus every person, religious or not, is worshiping something, idols, pseudo-saviors to get their worth, but these things enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them, or anger if someone blocks us from them, or fear if they are threatened, or drivenness since we must have them now. Guilt, anger, fear, drivenness are like fire that destroys us. Sin is worshiping anything but Jesus, and the wages of sin is slavery. Ultimately, idolatry is broken intimacy, the adherence to false narratives created to medicate our experience and the activity demanded as a response to the false narratives so we believe a lie and then we live a practice that is worship to an idol to medicate our experience when you have found yourself in the story of the israelites you're able when you're able to acknowledge that we do find ourselves in the story of the Israelites at times. Ignorant, impatient, arrogant, bowing to our own lordship, 
we're able to surrender to God, repent and turn back to him. Part of the way that we do this is through a lifestyle of spiritual disciplines. So we talked about a lifestyle of encounter. We've talked about submitting our story to God, writing out. I mean, I just, this doesn't have to be super complex. Like, how do we do this? Okay, go. Here's a, here's a great, here's practice number one. And this might mess you up, so sorry, group leaders. I want you to go back to your room and I want you to look yourself in the eyes in a mirror for like five minutes, like directly in, in the eyes. Look yourself in the eyes and, te- and, and then write out what you believe about yourself. Like how do you see yourself? You look yourself in the eyes and, tell, and, and let, just be honest with how you feel. Like, I, I'm someone that struggled with deep self-hatred. Like, I hated myself. And I couldn't look myself in the eyes. Because there was parts of me that I hated about myself. And it wasn't until I acknowledged that, and I began to walk with Jesus through that, that I began to walk in freedom from that. So look yourself in the mirror. Can you be upright before yourself? Can you look yourself and love? God loves you. You know, this isn't about, this isn't like a self-care practice. This is a, this is a self-sacrifice practice. And it's looking yourself, being honest with who you are so you can submit that to the Lord. God, I don't like me. I want, I want to believe that you like me, but I don't like me. Well, I want to work on that. Because I think you're the best. And you're my son or my daughter. And I want you to believe what I believe about you because I created you. Second practice would be writing your story out. Write your story out. Tell someone your story. Share your testimony. And be honest. Like, how do you tell your story? What, what are the things that you say? What are the, what are the self-deprecating jokes you make about yourself? Like, what do, you, what do you, in your mind, you go, I would say that about my story, but I think they're going to judge me about it. Write your story out and give it to the Lord. God, here I am. Just, it's, what a, what a joy, what a, pardon me, what a joyful practice to be able to go, God, here I am. And he receives you. And he loves you. Write your story out. Take a moment, and as you look through your life, as you write your story let the Holy Spirit, and this is another thing. Here's what I'm not saying to do. Dig up every painful moment in your life. Like, don't do that. I'm just, this is a disclaimer. Don't do that. But the Holy Spirit has a way of illuminating moments in your life. Some of you might have things in your head right now just being like, this is the thing I say about myself. This is the way I see myself. This is a story in my life. I don't want to give that to the Lord. Like, instantly, don't give that to the Lord. It's unsafe to give that to the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit dig on that. He has a way of revealing in time. I love 
Remember, time is a tool of God. In Acts, uh, in the upper room discourse, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, and he says, I have so much to tell you, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to give my spirit, and the spirit will reveal all things. So Jesus is okay using time to reveal truth. Who you are right now, you'll see your life differently five years from now. And, and to your amazement, as life goes on, I'm not very old, but there was a moment when I was 18, it was like all I could think of was like life in chunks of years, like one-year chunks. Then in my 20s, it was like I could graduate to like maybe three, four years. I'm like, man, this is a season. Like I'm 31, and I'm thinking of my life in 10-year in gaps right now. Like what am I going to be like when I'm 40? I think there's probably lessons that will take 10 years to marinate in my life. And when you hear, and this is why you, this honor your elders to hear the wisdom of, hey, this lesson that you might have just now started walking with the Holy Spirit, this one might take 20 years. Oh, isn't it good that God walks with us? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to walk. You're going to be 50 years old and you're like, I get it. Man, that was slow and beautiful and it was rich and powerful. In my life. Like, and so write your story how you see it now. Allow God to meet you right now so that you can begin to walk with him right now and cast away your idols right now so you can live in freedom and intimacy with God. So writing out your story, writing out, letting the Lord reveal maybe some habits, patterns, and paradigms in your life, relational tendencies that you have in your life. And then I would say begin practicing spiritual disciplines Spiritual disciplines are practices of self-sacrifice. When you start sacrificing your flesh, your idols will start crying out to you. So we talked about do what's good, resist what's bad, test what's neutral. If you're testing what's neutral and all you can do is justify it, it might be a stronghold in your life. Like I meet a lot of young people and they're like, hey man, you know, I got this dream, I got this vision, I'm going to do bar ministry. And I'm like, okay. Uh, that sounds like a terrible idea. And then, you know, I'm not actually that rude. I would be like, oh, interesting. Like, yeah, man, I'm in the music in, like I'm in the music scene, and so I just find myself in this, this that, and the other environment. This is what I'm going to do. And I would be like, okay, that's, uh, okay. Um, like, what kind, of, what kind of, like, accountability do you have in your life? Uh, no, I'm just kind of walking with the Lord. And you're like, all right. Um, do you, do you know your voice? Like, do you know that your flesh wants to indulge and you're placing yourself in a, in an environment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that. But see, the Bible doesn't really hit me. And Jesus' first miracle was water into wine, right? Am I right? So like, I don't actually think it's that big of a problem, you know? And, and you should not be able to tell me, like, I have freedom. Like Paul says I can drink. Like, it's okay. Paul told Timothy to have a drink to seal his stomach and you start justifying it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, dude, it just sounds like you just don't want to give up drinking. Like, it just sounds like you have these, like, no, I'm free. I'm free in Christ. I don't, that's religious. No, I didn't say anything. All I said was, have you considered the implications of what that might cost you if you get into patterns where it's dangerous? Ah. We justify things. Oh, it's like, hey, you know what? It's, a, it's, and this is for, I mean, we're in Kona. Guys wear shorter shorts than girls here, so, like. Hey, hey, I poked a nerve. We talk about modesty, and it becomes this thing, and I wish my wife was here because I would just have her talk about it because she's the best at it. But here's the truth. 
We talk about it and we justify. That's their problem. Okay, but are you unwilling to give it up? My, here's, my, here's my point. Here's my point. God is the Lord of your life. So there are moments where he may have you test something that is neutral and fine for someone else so he can get down to a heart posture in your life to teach you something. There may be a revelation on a sacrifice that you have to give up that just seems unfair, but guess what? The breakthrough's better than what you think is fairness. Well, how come John the Baptist had to wear a burlap sack and eat like cockroaches out in the forest? You know what I'm saying? Like there's a reality of going like there are things, there are things that might be personal consecrations on your life that give you freedom so that you can walk in the authority that God wants for you. And I, and I, so spiritual disciplines aren't just like religious things to make you more self-righteous. They actually begin to reveal your idols. Oh, man, I actually really still care about what people think about me. So I care about what I wear. I care about how I look. I care about how I'm perceived. I care about how I'm presented. I care about what activities I do. I want to be normal because I care more about what people think about me than what Jesus thinks about me. And maybe Jesus might say, hey, you know what? I actually don't have a, a big problem with you going to a bar, but I have a problem with you right now going to a bar. Because you want to be seen and be cool and be relevant and hip. And that'll, cru that'll, that'll crush you down the road when I put a platform in your life. Because you'll start making compromises for, that, for, that, for those reasons, for those idols of being validated. And I can't have you do that. So I need you to give it up. Well, God, I don't want to give it up. Well, I need you to give it up. And so we have to, we got to get used to putting ourselves in those positions of giving up those things so that God can get to our heart, to our core. And it's challenging, and it's hard, and it's rough, and it doesn't feel fair, but it's freedom. It's freedom. And so I'll, I have, uh, here are, uh, oh man, it's 1220, I got two minutes. We have to move from self-serving cultural practices to self-sacrificial spiritual practices. I have a, a 10 video thing on spiritual disciplines um, I'll give it to someone and you guys can just have that. So I won't be able to talk about all these right now. But here's what I want to, here's, there's a couple that I want to say that are important. Well, they're all important. So let me say uh, really quickly this. Most of the time, and if we have time to talk during lunch, there will be specific questions about specific people in your life or specific situations. My pretty much go-to answer is prayer. Because I believe there's actually profound direction in prayer. And I could give you maybe some insight that I have about specific things, but the best thing that I can give you is you need to get alone with God. Because if I give you something to do, your convictions will be on my word and not on the convictions of the presence of the Lord. So if you want confidence, you need to go to the Lord. You need to, re you need to, you need to rest in the presence of the Lord and set it before him. That's where your confidence comes from. So I can give you a strategy to talk to your, your family members or your school or whatever about how to lead them to the Lord, but you need to go before the Lord and set it before him and get in the word before him and pray to him because he will give you confidence to be able to walk that out. So we have to be a people of prayer. Jesus overturns tables and says, my house will be a house of prayer. We have to give Jesus the right to turn over tables in our hearts and say, my house will be a house of prayer. We have to reclaim prayer. Sabbath. 
taking a day of devotion to the Lord where you rest. You want to live unhurried. You want to make space for interruptions. Give God one day where you just focus on him and you don't work. Put your phone away. Put the screens away and look to him. Delight in him. Break bread with each other. Scripture. Read your Bible. Like, I don't, the disciples would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Okay? I don't. So that's a challenge to me. I want to be a person of the word. And I often get pushback on this. Oh, man, it feels religious. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible constantly says that I want to write his laws, his word, on my heart. So I don't, I, like, it's not religious. It's, it's how I love him. It's how I love God. I don't skip date nights with my wife, and I don't skip reading my Bible. So, like, there's, like, a reality. There's a reality to being, like, this is an act of affection. So you don't have to call it religious. Just say that it's an act of affection. I want to know him. This is how he talks. This is a conversation with him. Oh, I need a fresh word from the Lord. Okay, cool. He wrote a ton of words right in here. And, I, and, and so we have to be a people of, of the scriptures. Worship, glorify the Lord. You get settled in it. You make declarations. Community matters. And I would say community and, and is essential. We're going to talk about that tomorrow, but we are equipped in community. Confession matters. And I pair confession with communion. We confess and remember the broken bread and the blood poured out for our bodies. We take communion together. And, I, I, and I, communion is, is serious business. Like, it is beautifully serious business. If I had to say something that we need to reclaim, it would be prayer, Sabbath, confess. I would just say reclaim them all. Just rec- be spiritually disciplined. I, I wanted to be like, there's a couple. But fasting is also something that I think we need, to, we need to actually reclaim. And here's something that I need to say. And I'm over, but we started late. So I got, well, give me one minute. <laughs> I love Fasting when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we have to go to the Bible on how they're exemplified. Okay, I understand. I understand this. There are unique situations in which doing the biblical example is hard or it will take time to get to. It might be when, in regards to specifically fasting. There might be medical conditions. There may be uh, dietary restrictions, things that you cannot do. But we do not make justifications for what the Bible invites us into based on outliers. Now, I'm okay to make space for people that are like, hey, I can't. I, I, I have to do this, that, or other. I think Jesus is gracious, and I think he will make alternatives. What I'm saying is what we do is we justify a, a lesser version of, of what these spiritual disciplines are. So I, oh. If you tell me that you're going to do like a social media fast, I'm saying you should just delete your social media. Or put your phone, like get one of those lock boxes, put your phone in, in somewhere for like a week. Because here's the reality. Fasting something that's already not good for you, proven scientifically, isn't fasting. Fasting is removing something of necessity of, the temp, of your temporal like preference so that you can feast upon the eternal presence of God. Fasting... Fasting is intentionally putting yourself in the place of suffering and saying no to your flesh. Sometimes, sometimes we over mystify some of these spiritual disciplines. Like when you fast, it's like poof, just downloads from the Lord. Sometimes that happens, okay? And then again, I'll give you, I, I have resources for this, but like sometimes that happens. But what I have found and the reason why I'm a huge advocate 
for us in this time right now to reclaim prayer and fasting is that in the place of prayer, you hear the voice of God, and in the place of fasting, you hear your voice. You want to know how to deny your voice that lies to you and leads you into the place of sin? Listen to your voice when you're hungry. Fasting also makes us uh, avoid our preferences, right? Most of us have never been starving. We're just hungry for our preferences. I really want pokey right now. So we're in the cafeteria and we're like, I don't really want nachos. I want this. We know how to feast on our preferences. We don't actually know how to hunger, but God says to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how do we know how to actually hunger? We experience hunger. So we put ourselves in the place of fasting and we begin to deny our flesh. We hear our voice so we can hear his voice and hunger for that. So this is why I'm a proponent for, for, for fast, fasting. I just think it, it, I just think it's important. And even if you're not like, I had a massive breakthrough, the fact that you know what your voice yells at you like, because that's the voice that's going to call you into compromise. Generosity, major idol is our own sense of security. You guys, you guys are growing up in a generate like the financial place right now. COVID-19 and where we're like post-COVID-19, where we're at right now financially is terrifying. And that's you, like you're living in it. I got to hold on to what's mine. I got to figure out a, a strategy to make myself financially secure. The next generation will be even more plagued by it. Generosity says the Lord is my provider so I can give it away. So you want to crucify the idol in your life that says you need to control and have like security? Give things away. And when that voice says not that much, go a little bit more. Like here's the thing. You're at, like, like this is how I view, this is how I view my life. I want to destroy my flesh in the sense that I go, you do not get to lord over me. So I'm, so sometimes I just do little experiments where it's like, yeah, I'm going to pray out loud today. You know, like when it's like, man, it's just like, we got to be able to go, no, my flesh doesn't rule me. And just because I can justify why I'm doing what I'm doing doesn't mean I should be doing what I'm doing. And so I want to go against it so that I can give space for the Spirit of God in me. And finally, what I think you guys actually do really well here is celebration. Be a people that celebrate. Celebrate the small. Celebrate the mundane. Celebrate the moments. Every conviction that you say yes to and function and obedience in demands a celebration. Man, God is delighted. When you say no to your idols and you look back to him, when you turn back to him, when you respond to his love, God is delighted. We should be delighted. We should be elated. Christians should be the greatest celebrators in the world. Like we have to be innovative on how we celebrate. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites were marked by days of feasting and celebrating. We have two, Christmas and Easter. And we, I, all I'm saying is let's reclaim it because here's the deal. This looks, this is intimidating to go like, I, I want to be like, I want to move towards spiritual disciplines. Here's the thing. Celebrate every small step and it's okay to start wherever you're at. And don't feel guilty about being like, man, I don't do, I've, I will, I'll finish with this. Today's a lot. Usually I do this over two days, but I'm, 
Thank you. Here, here's what I want to say, though. There are moments in conversations like this where you go, like, I, I'm really realizing how much my story I haven't given over the Lord. Or I'm realizing how much I have lived a life of practices that are just not true. And you can just, the enemy can just take you and make you feel insignificant. Or you can see lists like this and go, I, I, no one ever taught me that. Like, I don't know, like, I don't, I feel like a terrible Christian now. And that's not the truth. Here's the truth. God just wants his sons and daughters to be honest with him so that he can meet you where you actually are, so that he can take you to the places that are bigger than you can ask, think, or imagine. That's what he wants to do. So if you're in a place right now where you're like, man, what is going on? I feel insecure. I feel broken. I feel like I need to do like a one-on-one -on -one with the Holy Spirit for like a year. If that's where you, I want to encourage you. Being like, you are, you're safe to be honest. This is the best place to be. And God's going to take you into redemption and do a life that you actually, like he desires for you. And it starts, like, it starts with you. I get it. You're signed up for a, like DTS. You're a missionary in training. You're going to go to the nations and you might feel like you're square one right now. This is, it, it's, God, God knows you. And he's just excited. Like, where we come into honesty, he's like, man, I'm so stoked that they get it. Have you ever looked at, I'm sorry. Have you ever looked at a baby picture of you, yourself, where you're just like messy? <laughs> and you're like, how did I not, like, do you shame that child that doesn't know how to eat? No, you don't. You look at yourself and you go, thank God I figured out how to use my hands and, like, eat avocados, you know? Like, and I, and I stopped going to the bathroom in my pants. Like, it's pretty great. Like, you know, like, there's a reality. You don't shame yourself for where you were immature because you didn't know and you weren't trained. When parents, when parents parent their children, they, there is a moment where they have to shift from soft food to hard food, and then kids just make messes of themselves. If the child does not learn how to take a banana and eat it, 90% of the banana is on their face. Like, if you've ever seen it, like, when we go up for lunch, you will see it. It's like spaghetti day is like World War III on their body. <laughs> if that parent does not allow their child to learn how to eat, they will remain in that state. So what's more loving? Do you think God is, it is messy sometimes putting your story before the Lord, and it feels like you're just making a mess. But God is walking you into maturity, showing you muscles that you didn't know that you had so you can stand upright before him. He's not intimidated from where you start because he knows where he's going to take you. So we're not going to let shame be the author of our lives. We're not going to let fear cripple us. And we're going to walk in the authority that God has. And we're going to submit our lives to him and practice the ways of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And then... We'll continue this tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. For more on worldview and culture and formation, stay right here on the Fire and Fragrance podcast.